For November 19th, 2018, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 542. Old Country for No Men. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're like a a, a team, a, a heist team, a team of robbers that comes together for one unexpected job. And uh, we are talking about the the film, the heist film, but so much Ocean's more. Ocean's Aid, right? Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you threw me off, Matt. Uh, hey, I'm Matt Rather. That's Matt Belinky. Hello. Hey, guys. <laughs> we also have Peter Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hello. And rounding out our uh, expert safe-cracking foursome, fearsome foursome, we have Jordan Stokes. Hello. Why did you bring us to the sauna, Matt? it's it's to tell you that uh that mark lee is not with us he's on another job uh tonight but he will uh he will be back soon with the spoils and be able to share all of that with us also i should say that we are not doing the harry potter movie this week we'll do it next week after everyone has a chance to see it with their families over thanksgiving uh but this week we are talking about the steve mcqueen directed film starring viola davis widow which is a, a, a heist film, as I said before, but I think goes goes a lot deeper than that and should provoke a uh, a very interesting conversation. So, um, hey, a couple items to follow up before we get into that. Uh, last week's episode was kind of a departure. It it uh, in tone and in information, it got a little it got a little personal. And I just wanted to say that in case anyone was concerned, uh, my girlfriend's house seems to have made it through the Woolsey fire here in Los Angeles, which is a small, uh, well, for, for her, it's a, a very big be- piece of good news, but a small piece of good news in the midst of a lot of uh, uh, devastation from that fire and the other fires, uh, especially the very, very deadly one up in Northern California. So um, as those situations resolve, a uh, couple people reached out to me uh, about that. And thank you very much for that. Thank you for for being concerned. And I just, just wanted to share the news that that particular group of people seems to have uh, seems to have come through okay um, the other piece of information that I wanted to share was that uh, I I don't know why the stars aligned to make this happen but we published an article on overthinking it this week that the impossible happened the Red Sea parted and uh, there is a think tank um, about the late great Stanley up on uh, overthinking it.com this week Featuring actually contributions from all of the people who are here on this, uh, uh, who are here on this podcast. So, gentlemen, thank you for writing, and uh, I hope you go check that out at Overthinking It. It's um, right there on on the homepage. I, and I don't know why uh, the stars aligned and we we all wrote something together, but it, it's very nice to be back with you, uh, to be back putting pen to paper with you, folks. And it's very uh, it's very nice to have a, a panel like this on on the podcast again. This is the the largest show that we've had uh, in in a while, and it's uh, it's good to talk to have a really great movie to talk about. All right, warning. Uh, 
the the this podcast contains spoilers for the film Widows, and you know we always tell you whether it matters or it doesn't matter. In this movie, uh, it matters. There are a couple of pieces of information. Um, I mean, uh, spoiler alert. I guess it's it's sort of different from the tone that is sold in the trailer. Um, but but you sort of I I actually sort of expected that it's directed by uh, Steve McQueen who directed the film Hunger the film Shame and the film Twelve Twelve Years a Slave and he is uh, you know a very sort of arty um, director making a the, sort of the leap to the multiplex as one article I read put it making what could potentially be a commercial um kind of thriller type of type of film and yet uh is is a strong enough strong enough director that a lot of interesting manages to do a lot of interesting things but uh it's concerned a lot with the, there's information that's withheld and revealed uh at certain times and those things affect the experience uh, of the movie and you don't necessarily see them all coming so uh Fair warning, spoiler alert for uh, for widows. With that, let's jump into it. Pete, you uh, had an interesting take on some of the relationships uh, in in this movie, and and you uh, uh, you know why don't why don't you uh, start us off by sort of talking about how you see the characters relating to each other, how uh, what those relationship means, and how that kind of was an entryway for you into this movie. Yeah, sure. So. Widows, <clears throat> if you'll excuse me, is it builds itself as a heist movie. It has a lot of stuff about very intense interpersonal relationships, which is offset against a background of a lot of politics and a lot of uh, racial and economic uh, criticism, analysis, stuff like that. But the initial shots of the movie, which really come down like a hammer of tone that tells you this is what the movie is going to be about are about the intimate relationships, at least the ones, the the, the initial shots that I responded to are, are the intimate relationships that the various widows have with their husbands before their husbands all die. And of course, the conceit here is that their husbands are all criminals and they all get involved in a big heist and then they all die. And then the widows, their wives, uh, have to go and do another heist in order to clean up the mess that was caused by the first heist failing. That's kind of the basic uh, back of the envelope thing. But you see a really intimate uh, shots of Viola Davis and Liam Neeson in their marriage, just touching each other and kissing each other. And, you know, he, he like he like grazes her face with his nose after he gets out of the shower. There's a lot of very close up shots throughout the movie of various sorts of physical touch. Uh, we see Alice's character. She has a, a black eye because she's been hit in the face by her husband. Uh, these husbands are not all princes. Well, in fact, none of them are. Nobody in this movie is a prince um, and and so on and so forth. But uh, and that's a whole other topic. But, you know, he tries to touch her face because he's touched her face. And what these really called out to me was watch touching in this movie. See what touching means in this movie, because the initial introductions you're getting to everybody's marriages and what it means to be married and thus what it means to be widowed are being set up as intimate relationships of touch. Uh, The one with uh, uh, Michelle Rodriguez is about clothing and wearing clothing and taking clothing away. And it's a little bit and and it's about children, really. In in that sense, children are kind of part of your body and and so on and so forth. Uh, I don't want to get too too deep in that right now. But the proposition I have here 
is that uh, which is, I think, outlined a couple of times by various characters in various sorts of Downton Abbey moments where they're talking about something else, but really talking about what the movie is about, is that there are touch relationships in this movie where people connect with each other through this intimacy of being in contact and that these touch relationships have various sorts of dynamics and various sorts of positives and negatives and that these relationships are different from and interact with people's transactional relationships, the things that they do in politics, the things that they do with money. These things are related to the things that they do with touch, but touch is hugely important. Uh, And I would even venture to say that coming away from this movie, Widows, to me, speaks to people who were one flesh with somebody else, and then that part of the flesh has been taken away. And then so they're left without kind of a part of themselves as manifested by the person that that was touching them or that they were touching is gone. And they have to adjudicate the various conflicts and challenges of their life in the absence of this connection to this other person. And the whole idea of the heist and the, and the desperation and necessity that feeds the heist is related to these problems. But yeah, but that's basically is, is my, my initial reaction to the movie widows is that it really has a lot to do with touch. Like the hair braiding is very close up and intimate. The cigarette smoking is very tactile. This stuff, all seems really really powerful and important what's going on in the movie so can i interrogate that a little bit yeah sure um in the the opening sequence it's cutting back and forth between these very intimate interactions between the women and their husbands uh three of which involve touch and one of which rather pointedly does not mm-hmm. so you you described already the uh the Liam Neeson Viola Davis one and uh and the the um what's her name Debicki right uh the 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 Alice character um Michelle Rodriguez has a kiss at the end of that interaction which is really interesting because it seems to be both affectionate and overtly hostile at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the fourth woman uh, who turns out to be like Liam Neeson's girl on the side, right? Her husband just walks out without saying anything to her. And you're sort of left wondering, well, what the heck was that about? Um, right, right. So in this case, you have all of these people who are the titular widows being touched or not being touched rather significantly by the men. But what are some of the other relationships of touch that you're talking about? You say that it's not just uh, a way of describing marriage. You say that there are relationships that are touch relationships and other relationships that are not touch relationships. So where do you where else do you see touch coming into the movie one super one super important one is viola davis and the dog right and the the way the dog is threatened by the uh the main gangster uh whose name is is manning right yeah jack manning jack jack gangster uh jamal manning brian tyree henry the the uh the actor and um He's, uh, you know, that that dog and the way she holds on to it. I, I'd also say the the son who the dead son who is present mostly in his absence is never shown uh, touching um, is never shown kind of with his parents being being available to touch. But in the, the one shot where we see at least that I can recall where we see him and Viola Davis together, she is putting gloves, white gloves onto his hands. Uh, in his casket and kind of making sort of making touch unavailable uh, in that 
in that relationship. The um, time when when Cynthia uh, Erivo, uh, who, whose character's name is Bell, um, who who is the fourth member of the team, uh, who starts as a babysitter and ends up joining the team, um, shows up to Michelle Rodriguez's house to take care of her kids. The kind of the touch of the kids and kind of Michelle Rodriguez's. It's kind of she feels guilty. She feels separated from her kids, uh, and she feels kind of like a failure as a mother because she can't get in. She can't get into that. Um, I, those are just off the top of my head. Yeah. So a few, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Pete, there's a scene that wait, I wait, didn't let me quite answer. Understand. Let me answer Jordan's question. If yeah, you're go gonna, for it. All right. So to answer Jordan's question, a couple more. Uh, when Liam Neeson is buried, there is a brief exchange where Viola Davis is talks talks to Bash, the chauffeur, chauffeur, and suggests that she that he would be disappointed that his grave was dug by like a backhoe, and that he would have wanted human grave diggers. Is one interesting, one interesting sort of weird throw out there. Uh, an, another one is in the hairdresser, which I mentioned before, where they have two women who are having their hair done, and one of them is having her uh, very uh, sort of nappy hair being braided and and dressed by the hairdresser directly with her fingers in a very sort of intense tactile way, and the woman who's having her hair straightened is having it straightened by a machine and says like, "How long do I have to stay under this thing?" Right, and so there's a contrast, and of course. In movies that primarily are by and focus on black people, hair is a big deal. Uh, so this is like a big deal that hair has sort of touch in humanity if it's natural. And then the sort of artificial hair is artificial. But the other big one, which I don't want to leave on the table and we don't have to go deep into it right now, is that it is revealed in in a sort of one would almost would probably say unnecessarily unnecessary otherwise throwaway moment that Robert Duvall, the old alderman, and Colin Farrell, the young alderman, had like a physically abusive relationship uh, that continues, right? That like uh, that it, Robert Duvall comes out and basically says, you know, I, if you don't do what I want, I'll beat you. Right. I'll I'll whoop your this and that. And don't think I couldn't still do it. Right. Don't think I couldn't do it, which it would, you know, more than imply that Robert Duvall has been beating Colin Farrell for his entire life, uh, which means that and, and his talking, he has these sort of weird throwaway speeches about how he really is going to be happy when his father is dead. Uh, which is also really intense for a heist movie. Um, and, and I think that this also speaks to the fact that they have an intimate touch relationship and that at the end of the movie, he is a widow in a similar way to which the other widows are widows, uh, which I feel like it kind of is it kind of full, comes full circle. But sorry, Matt, go ahead. What's your question? No, I, I, honestly, really interesting observations. Uh, I would add to the to the observation you had about Viola Davis talking to Bash at the funeral, and she says he would have appreciated human grave diggers, and meaning that like the the personal touch right is is means more than the machine. Bash's response is, "I don't think that there are human grave diggers anymore." <laughs> right? Is that like so? It's not even an option to get right. that level of touch. But I wanted to bring up a scene that that I didn't quite understand, but I wanted to flag because I feel like it it kind of sticks out like a sore thumb and that means it must be really important and it's the one where michelle rodriguez meets the architect's widow yeah um because so here's the thing so so in a movie like this with a lot of characters and a lot of moving parts every scene has a purpose right no scenes are in there incidentally and so if there's a dead end as there is in this case it must be a significant dead end um and so that what what um what's going on here is that she needs to find out um the uh Liam Neeson has left behind plans for a heist, but he has not 
uh, noted where the heist is going to be. It's it's a blueprint, but they don't even know where the building is. So they're prepping a heist, but they don't know uh, what they're planning to steal, where they're planning to steal it. So Michelle Rodriguez has a blueprint. She sees that there's a, a logo of an architect on it. She goes to the architect's place. She manages to sort of uh, guilt the receptionist into telling her the name of the architect that actually designed it, goes to this person's house, um, and is getting ready to presumably sort of sweet talk them into saying uh, where this place is. And then it turns out that the architect is actually uh, deceased, and she's talking to the the uh, widow, the the uh, the widower, right, the the uh, the man widow. Um, and so then she uh, opens up to him and she says uh, the truth, which is that she herself lost her husband a couple weeks ago. And at this point, I figured that it was some it, it was she was swerving, ready, changing direction. She was saying this to try to open up a new angle of attack, to try to get this information out of him. And then there's and, and there's a moment of intimacy, right? They, they actually kiss, they embrace and I was thinking that Michelle Rodriguez is somehow playing him, right, is trying to, like, get physically intimate with him as a way of getting what she wants. But then it's not that. Then she pulls away and she's like, that was wrong. I'm sorry. And and that's the end of it, right? And I'm just wondering, so so it is a moment of, of physical touch for Michelle Rodriguez that that's seemingly unprompted by anything having to do with the heist. Um, and I'm just wondering what you made of that scene. It's really interesting. I'm curious to hear what other people think about it, too. In retrospect, I see a lot of it <clears throat> as relative to Alice's relationship with her architect, where with her building designer, where he don't you want all the best things without the worst things is what the guy says to her in because she's getting work as a call girl, right? She's getting work as a, as a high price prostitute, basically as an escort. And, you know, obviously there are differences between these things. She's one of them. She's not the others. Doesn't particularly matter for the sake of this discussion, but she's selling herself as a sexual partner for this building designer. And the way that he pitches it to her, because he's trying to be nice, is that we go out, you know, we hang out, we have sex. I miss the intimacy of being with a woman. I miss the smell, which is kind of creepy that he says that in a public place, but like whatever. And then, uh, you know, wouldn't you also want that? You know, the good things about being together with somebody, but then when you're done, you can go home to your separate places. And I think what he's saying is that, because his wife is dead also, is that like, I don't want to experience the pain of being with somebody and losing them. And and she identifies with that. And I think that sort of convinces her that this is what she wants to do. And the scene with Michelle Rodriguez and her architect widow, although he's an architect widower without a hyphen, <laughs> right? He is a, a widower of an architect rather than a widower architect, uh, is that... You know, he they only have the worst part. And that's the thing that they share in that moment. They have only the bad things and none of the good things. And they have that really torrid embrace where she's just weeping. She's like the the, the waterworks are on and she's crying. And yeah, and it's so shocking when she doesn't use it to manipulate him. Be, but it seems maybe it's sort of presented as an inversion of Alice's relationship to sort of also to sort of. The whole movie is calling into question the notion that anybody can just have the good things of anything. Everybody has problems. Everybody is bad. I don't know if it's actually saying everybody in the world is bad, but it's resisting pretty hard the notion that every anybody in the movie is really good. I mean, I guess yeah. Viola Davis is, but I don't know. I don't. What do you guys? What Jordan? What do you think about the scene I mean, with the toward embrace of the architect? Yeah, I uh, I thought that that was interesting. I think that 
basically my reading on it is the same. But what I would say is what it's challenging is not whether you can have the good parts of anything without the bad parts of anything, but whether those are actually parts of the things that you might think they are. What I saw was going on in that scene, or what I assumed was going on in that scene, is that both of these people, having lost someone that they were physically intimate with, are yearning for physical intimacy. Now, of course, they're not really yearning for that, you might say. They want they want their person back. But when they are open to this other person because they are suffering together, and then they're touching each other because they are trying to comfort each other, that's what it starts out as, it very quickly seems to both of them for, for a hot second that they want to be sexually intimate with each other. Because at the end of the day, touch is not actually a property of intimate personal relationships. Touch is touch. And you kind of see this in some of the ones that you brought up already, right? When, um, when Bell shows up at uh, at Linda's house, right? Uh, at uh, at the baby when the babysitter comes in and starts touching the kids that she's being paid to take care of. That's not an intimate relationship. She's an employee, right? Uh, she is being paid to do physical touching, to do a very intimate kind of emotional labor, and we can talk all about that. Uh, there, there are certain kinds of labor that require us to pretend that we are intimate with people, and there is a real intimacy there as well. I don't mean to say that that there never has been a, a babysitter that really cared about somebody, or a care worker that really cared about somebody, or, you know, for that matter, a prostitute who really cared about somebody, that they were being paid to touch. But the point is that, uh, in fact, touching is not the natural property and sort of uh, direct logical consequence of certain kinds of relationships that are outside of inter- like of capitalist exchange. Very often, you are paid to do exactly those things. So these two kinds of relationships, although I do think the movie is interested in drawing a line between what is mine, what is of the family, and what is of society, and what is required of me, and what involves money and exchange and all that, it also very, very consciously muddies those waters. Oh, yeah, definitely. I I think I read it pretty similarly, but just put the parentheses in a different part of the equation where it's like these the touch relationships have an intimacy to them, which is not necessarily part of a relationship that you would think of as an intimate relationship. And I guess it's a question of how much you think transfers over. How intimate is Bella with Linda's kids? How intimate is Alice with her architect? Uh, I mean, I guess how intimate is... uh, uh, Kayuya, what's what's that? Guy? I can't forget the the uh, the muscles name. They don't say it a lot in the movie. Very interestingly, his name is Jatem, and they tell Jatem. you, oh, Jamal is Arabic for beautiful, and of course, Jatem is French for I love you. So right. his name is I love you, Manning. Uh, and when he, and when, <laughs> that's hilarious. I love you, Manning. That's great. When he goes to interrogate the bowling alley guy and stabs him many many times, it's presented in this like tender, personal, sexual way. Right. Where there's like like it, it enters quickly and exits and there's the sort of bloom of red on him. And like sometimes it doesn't even hurt when he's stabbing him in his paralyzed legs, which I think is 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 I think it's doing I think it's I think it can I like your explanation for it. 
I came down a little bit differently on it, but I think the two things are very close. And the movie is is sort of uh, managing these kind of lines and blurry areas and, and shoving one sort of thing into another sort of thing. Uh, it's uh, a heist, if you will. <laughs> the The intimacy of the personal is being stolen by the commercial or by the political or by the racial, uh, because, you know, race is about physical bodies in a lot of ways, and physical bodies involves touch, that these things are kind of uh, what belongs to one sphere and one belongs to the other sphere is constantly being challenged by through various sorts of methods. Um, that's that's a good sort of pivot to the to the idea of this movie as a heist movie because it's come up a couple times in our conversation already. You know, uh, mostly as a caveat is how we're using it rhetorically. Like as as we know, this film is a heist film, but or uh, you know, so that that seems to be kind of a limiting a limiting statement, a statement about its kind of genre membership, and I guess. Um, without, unless uh, I don't, unless this is how we want to spend the hour uh, going down the rabbit hole of what is it, what what even is a genre, right? What what even does it does it mean when we say that uh, this is a, a such and such kind of film? But the idea of something being misappropriated thematically, I guess, is one sense in which this is a heist film or something that something that isn't uh, something that is wrong uh, in the wrong context, being kind of taken from the right context into the wrong context. Uh, Liam Neeson going from the the correct family with. Violence Viola Davis to the to the incorrect family uh, with the woman he's having the affair with um, the the relationship of marriage being taken from a a domestic or sort of social sphere the sphere of personal intimacy and also of kind of like societal building of having children and raising them um, into a uh, into an economic transaction with like a sugar daddy. Right. And that's the, the, the relationship of good governance and politics being kind of shifted over into criminality. And in, in Jamal and Jatem, you know, good, honest criminals, right? Who are trying to, to get into the sphere, the sphere of politics, right? A kind of blurring of boundaries, a kind of misappropriation. But then there's also the question of taking five million, uh, five million, you know, United American dollars out of, uh, uh, out of, out of a safe. And in that sense, it is a it is a uh, heist film. So, so when we say it's a heist film, are we are we limiting it? I mean, I think we we would all agree that if it's limited, this one transcends in in some sense. But what uh, what what even is a heist film? You know, one thing that struck me about this is that insofar as this is a heist film, it is a delightfully simplistic heist. That I feel like there's a certain escalation that's going on with heist films over the past couple of decades, where each subsequent heist film needs to sort of up the ante in terms of the complexity. Um, I mean, I'm thinking of just in the last year, uh, Logan Lucky and Ocean's 8, both of which involve there's all kinds of uh, technical wizardry. There are acrobats involved. There are, you know, the crackerjack timing going on in multiple uh, locations. You know, so it, it's a part of it is like the filmmaker's skill. In, you know, like, how complex can you make things? How many balls can you keep in the air? And so that, like, I this I kind of expected it to go in a similar direction when they find Liam Neeson's notebook, and it's filled with these handwritten notes, and I sort of expected it to be this remarkably complex thing that Liam Neeson's been working on his whole... But basically, the plan comes down to this. Here's a guy that we can blackmail, and he has the combination to a safe... And then you run into the building and you type in the combination, you take the money, and then you run out the front door into a van and you drive away. 
Like that is the heist, <laughs> and it's it's great. And, and it's it, which one like, of them does? Which one of them is close up magic? And which one of them does like big David Copperfield magic? How does it? Right. I mean, <laughs> compare that to like, uh, what is it? Uh, now you see me, right? Where the whole thing is like, I mean, there it's it's just this ridiculous. Uh, the, the complexity is part of the fun. Is that like how ridiculously complex? And I think it's to this movie's credit that it sort of broke that cycle, right? That 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 the movie's success or failure is not measured on like how impressive is the heist because in terms of Hollywood heisting right this is not very impressive at all but because the movie feels more grounded and more realistic the fact that like it's less like it doesn't require a Chinese acrobat to be suspended over the moat at the Metropolitan Museum of Art um, doesn't feel like a failure or disappointment it feels nice actually it does make a, a version of the movie where she sells the notebook to Jamal and he opens it up and it says, like, go into the house, take the money, and then go back out. And he's like, what did I just buy? <laughs> <laughs> Two million dollars on this? I mean, it is funny that there's a blueprint to the to the safe room in there. But the blueprints are – I mean, the fact that the room exists, I suppose, is important. But it's not like the actual dimensions of the room are super – you know, this isn't like – what is it uh, – Oh, it's the the Italian job. The remake is the one where they have to like drop the safe through three floors of an Italian villa, you know, into a waiting speedboat that's like below the house. No, it's scuba <laughs> so dive. Like, no, it goes down. It goes underwater. It's they scuba oh, dive right, right away. Sorry. Right, that's a uh, speedboat is the decoy. And by the way, that's not even the main heist in the Italian job. That's just yeah, that's the, the easy heist. Yeah, that's just the pre credits mission. <laughs> you know, that's the 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 first sequence in the James Bond movie. Um, or you know or whatever i mean i guess so i guess that that like from the secondary material i've read the the director steve mcqueen saw the miniseries television miniseries uh on which this is this is based um like as a as a child he said he said did you guys by the way did you did you guys get a like a weird uh pre-movie intro from steve mcqueen yeah, he he'd always wanted to make like, this what, movie. But like, but like, look, we've already bought a ticket. We're there. Like, to what end is that added to the movie? I think it's an anti-piracy thing. Actually, I think it it's, worked for me. You didn't even didn't say, know. "Please don't pirate my dream." <laughs> um, <laughs> if you have your camcorder in there, and you're, yeah. it was weird. Um, so yeah, Widows TV miniseries, six episodes, uh, 19, 1983. And apparently, uh, and, and the, the writer of that, um, Linda LaPlante is credited in the film as the kind of the originator of the idea for this, uh, uh, for this film. Um, so she, uh, kind of originated this idea and Steve McQueen had this, story kicking around in his head as he described it until the sort of the time was right to tell it and he had you know sort of the right time for the subject matter and a star uh and a star who could who could handle it and like it's you know i don't mean to go off but like let let us now praise famous viola davis's um 
she's rad. Like she's so so good. Uh, oh, she kills it in the in the, in this and everything. But like especially in this, this is one of those like Robert De Niro, Martin Scorsese moments where like I feel like the the right performer and the right director and the right subject matter have just you know coalesced into this this uh, amazing performance that that. Um, you know, I don't know. We're dead. Obviously, I'm stumbling over myself. So, like words, my words anyway can't describe uh, how how good I think it is. And like she's a she's a one of the she's one of them. You know, she's she's up there with the the De Niro's and the the Daniels Day Lewis and and things like this in the in in the the pantheon of American actors. I I would say. I mean, that's not even that that. Anyway, back to the heist film. Yeah, I, w- I was definitely. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say it's sort of interesting. I feel like there are two ways that you can have somebody be really, really good in genre fare, and one is what Viola Davis does here, where she elevates it beyond the genre, and you forget that you're watching a crime movie when she's when she's really going off in this. You just feel like you're watching a a human being in an extreme emotional state or something like that. It it, it raises it to the level of art, but then you also have the way that, for instance, Vincent Price behaves in all of those old wonderful Hammer horror movies, where he doesn't exactly elevate it out of the genre but rather like wallows within the genre and is a delight to watch in in other ways that have nothing to do with these sort of higher artistic virtues you know one one thing that i've heard and i i can't credit this i i totally forget the origin of this but that like uh, uh melodrama or sort of literary fiction or kind of high art type of of narrative is about uh extreme reactions to normal events and genre fiction is about normal reactions to extreme events right and that like uh this is sort of in that it is a it's a a story about people kind of in extremis right it's it is genre fiction in that it's about normal it's about uh, normal reactions to uh to extreme events right like and it's a little it it really deals well uh, with the why don't you just go to the cops question, you know? And, like, I feel like we accept the answer to that of, like, well, they'd kill me. The, like, uh, in um, in narrative, perhaps a little too easily, right? Like, because why don't you just go to the... They can get you out of the city if that's the issue, you know? Um, and this one de- deals with it like, well, your your husband was a criminal, none of the cops like him, the whole, uh, the whole deal is very... Uh, is very well executed in terms of kind of the kind of the step by inevitable step that uh, that where Viola Davis ends up as the the head of this heist crew. Anyway, Pete, you you were uh, trying to get in there a little earlier. Oh yeah, you know it's it's there's plenty to talk about. That's for sure. This movie, see this movie by the way. If you're still listening because you want it, you know you want it spoiled. We haven't revealed the really biggest stuff yet, so it's not too late to turn the podcast off or on pause. Go see the movie, come back and listen to the rest of it because it's a great movie. So I was pretty surprised. I did not know going into the movie that it was based House of Cards style on an old British television show, and even borrowed very closely key plot elements from an old British television show because on watching it. 
I felt like it resonated with other movies that I was like, oh, this is a movie that's kind of riffing on other movies that Steve McQueen has seen. And and uh, the one that really stuck out to me is the 95 Hughes brother movie, Dead Presidents, which is a similar sort of which also you should see, though, not with the same kind of urgency. It's been around for a while. It's going to be around for a while more. Uh, it's got Chris Tucker in it, which is great. Um Similar sort of movie where it's a bunch of black guys who went to Vietnam and they came back from Vietnam and they can't get work. And there's all sorts of stuff that they're having problems with and their desperation of their situation. It involves gang violence. It's based on a book called The Bloods and Oral History of the Vietnam War by black veterans. Uh, and so desperation really drives them to conduct a heist, which actually pretty closely resembles the botched heist at the beginning of the movie Widows, in that they try to steal from an armored car, but the armored car blows up, and then a bunch of them get killed. And it's like a horrible tragedy, because it was botched and terrible. But there's no, like, sort of, and now Viola Davis will avenge you. But it's this idea of, like, look at what happened to force these people in their situation to do this thing. And the heist is 10% of the movie and the 90% of the movie is the motivation, not just the like character motivation, but just the sort of intense necessity and desperation of the environment that drives them to this thing. Can I, did anybody else see? Yeah, can, go ahead. yeah. Can I, let me horn in on dead presidents for a second in that film the I saw it in, I was in high school when, cause it's like 20 years old now. Right. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, I saw it, I saw it with uh, my uh, high school friend in, in high school. And I remember us talking about it afterwards and the, the, the impression that we came away with was that because the thing that they're stealing in dead presidents, that the dead presidents are bills marked for destruction, are U.S. currencies, mm-hmm. U.S. currency with the face of a president on it. Uh, but they're dead presidents because they are marked for destruction by the the U.S. Treasury or the you know Bureau of Engraving and Pre- whatever federal agency is is doing that. So they're they're knocking off armored cars. Um, Right. In order to uh, in order to get this money that the society doesn't even want anyway. And it's this kind of triple marginalization. Uh, it's the, the marginalization of of being black in America, the marginalization of being uh, a returned veteran um, who can't kind of reintegrate into society. And not only are there no jobs, but there's even the money that is that is trash money, the money that's marked for destruction uh you can't have that either and it's it's this sort of this uh so it's a, it's uses the heist genre to sort of talk about social abjection a, a kind of like before the theorization of this was really mainstream to kind of like intersectional uh dehumanization and kind of degradation that is visited upon these 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 characters who can't uh who can't get any any money uh not even the trash money but here's an interesting uh, point of comparison with Dead Presidents is that if I recall correctly, in Dead Presidents, the the crew, not only are they all friends, but they all were in the army together. So there's a real bond of, of I guess, for lack of a better word, brotherhood, right? Like those guys trust each other going into the heist. And it's very different in this movie. And in fact, I wanted to make sure you guys read this the situation, the formation of the crew, the same way I did, and I'm talking about the scene in the sauna here. So uh, Viola Davis is approached by uh, Jamal Manning, who basically says, "I'm holding you responsible for the money." And I now, obviously, Jamal Manning has no way of knowing that she has access to a further heist. So this isn't like an Ocean's Twelve scenario where. Um, 
uh, where uh, uh, what's his name? The, the hotel owner. I, I forget who it is, but the the bad guy basically goes to the crew and is, is like, it, "I is want it Andy to- Garcia." Or yes, is that- I'm Andy. Yeah. I'm trying, I was trying to think of Andy Garcia's character name. It's oh. basically like, "I want you guys to perform a further heist to repay me for the first heist." That that uh, Jamal Manning basically is just like, "I want you to sell your apartments." Um, and then pres- so it's interesting to think about what's going through Viola Davis's mind at this point because she could go ahead and do it, but I'm thinking that she just basically doesn't want to give up her lifestyle doesn't want to have to like live in her car from now on and and wants something wants better than having to sort of like take her lumps and work in a supermarket for the rest of her life and so what she does is lies to the other women right Mm -hmm. because she tells them that jamal manning is in fact coming after all of us is holding you guys responsible just as much as me when that's not the case. Now, we know because we, we've seen some scenes with the other two women that they have financial problems of their own, that they actually really need the money. But Viola Davis isn't being honest with them and isn't basically saying, here's an opportunity to make money, is basically saying, if you don't do this, you will be killed, which isn't really accurate or fair. Is that is that your read on it, guys? Basically that, except that Michelle Rodriguez sees what she's doing. Uh, like the, the Alice character is like, and what if we don't want to do this? And Michelle Rodriguez says, then she'll give them our names. So the idea is that uh, Viola Davis would go with her check from selling her apartment to uh, to Jamal Manning and say, by the way, you want to get a little more money? Here are the names of the people that worked with my husband on this job. Their wives all have apartments as well. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's the opposite of the dead president scenario in a way where like this crew is formed. They have as much reason to mistrust and even backstab each other as they do to help each other out. And part of the tension of this movie is the question of whether they have any reason to trust that, that they won't sell each other out when push comes to shove. Yeah. And there was a really tense moment for me, at least uh, when after the heist has gone down um, it's, it's Viola Davis, uh, Veronica, I think, is the character's name, right? And Belle are left in the van, and they sort of stop, and Belle kind of, like, you can see her sort of, like, weighing what's going to happen, and she gets out of the van and walks away. And she's got to be thinking, when there were four of us here, we could all keep each other honest, but now it's just me and her, and she could shoot me in the back, and no one would ever know, and take all the money and run away with it, and no one would ever know. And, you know, she's not even her babysitter, right? What, how does she know that that's not going to happen? So I, I think that that's, that really is a very big part of it. Yeah. I definitely, I'll pose this counter question to everybody. I was never really certain throughout the movie, even up until the end, the degree to which the women who worked together on the heist really forged a bond with each other that had a positive personal quality that was sort of admirable and worthwhile that was like that was good for them and that they liked or that was like not that that they ever really got past the notion of their relationship being out of necessity or transactional and i was particularly thinking of that last shot of the movie where viola davis is standing there smiling and i i've just it, it really confounded me and i'm just i'm really curious what you guys think about like is there an arc here where the women go from not trusting each other to trusting each other or is it always kind of complex and fraught in various sorts of ways. Well, that, okay, can I speak to this? Yeah, the, I, la- I thought, the last scene for sure. Yeah, I, I thought that this was actually 
at least on a surface level, this is just what the movie is about. So the biggest Liam Neeson scene, the one where he shows you every vein in his neck, is when he says, I couldn't save us, so I had to save me. And that is meant to be read as his ethos and the ethos of all of the worst people in the movie, against which our four heroines are to be read. So the notion of him saying, I couldn't save us, so I had to save me, is that, like, uh, because his family is a mixed-race family, and, like, his son is a guy who reads as black, his son gets murdered by the cops, right? And there's nothing that he could do about that. He'd kept his son out of a life of crime, and his son still gets killed trivially by the police. So he wants to abandon... Uh, Viola Davis and go like go have a white family. Uh, it's flagged as specifically that in the film. Like she she calls it that, right? Um, and you can sort of see it in the way that the Colin Farrell character, he sort of knows that he's not doing anything. That government has not done anything to help the people in his ward. And rather than try to fix that, he's trying to get some of this dirty money and run off and do something else. He's going. He's not going to try to save us. He's going to try to save him. Uh, during the course of the heist, all of the women involved get a chance to show that rather than just saving themselves, they're going to try to save the other people as well. And it, it goes in this order. So um, first of all, after Alice gets shot, uh, Michelle Rodriguez takes her to the hospital and says, I'm going to stay with her. She could just drop her drop her out of the van, but no, she carries her into the hospital, meaning that rather than doing the thing that's best for her, she's going to take care of this other person. Um, it's there when Belle takes some of her heist money and gives it to her old boss to help her get out from under the corrupt politicians that she's working under. Uh, and then it's there when Viola Davis smiles at Alice at the end of the film. And then presumably, I guess you're sort of left to imagine Alice's sort of returning of that gesture. So I guess not all four of them. Alice is, Alice is left out. She gets shot before uh, she has a chance to. But the point of that is that even in this extreme situation, as the heist is going down, rather than just saving themselves, they choose to save each other. And the point is not that they do this because they are sisters united by blood and extreme circumstances, and they know that they can count on each other above all else. It's because they are kind of reaching out into the void and choosing to to help in a way that isn't necessarily a rational cost-benefit win-win prisoner's dilemma kind of scenario. Rather, you're choosing to disadvantage yourself in order to not just be saving yourself. So that's my read. I, yeah, I think the title of the movie has something to do with this also in terms of this this kind of thematic area about what is a me and what is an us, right? It's not called women. It's called widows. And a widow is a person who has been an us and then lost the us, right? And is no longer, is very poignantly sort of no longer an us. And so the idea of, of meanness versus, versus usness is sort of encoded in the, uh, uh, encoded in the, the, the DNA of the Moody from, from the title on down. And it's not, this is definitely, well, it's the title of the, uh, uh, of the original TV series, but you know, you, you feel like Hollywood could have renamed the film. 
film something like uh, Awesome Badass Ass-Kicking Ladies Club or, or something that it's that they actually uh, that they actually didn't do. Um, did this this is one where sort of every everything everything is of a piece. And and also Pete, I think like I think what you're talking about has to do with something that's like the the sense of like where does any sense of of common cause come from um i think we're we're verging on it but i think there's also something in the the way the film is made where it is kind of it always kind of edges up to the tropes of uh of the genre that we're that we're expecting, right? And then it doesn't really give them to us, or it gives them to us in an in an unexpected way, which to me is what makes it good, right? Like the the real work and the real sort of creativity of what uh, of how do you do this in a way that is new, that's unexpected, that's you know surprising, or that's uh, appropriate for this, that's kind of tailor made, that's kind of bespoke appropriate for this story. So the one that I'm missing. Uh, uh, that I'm talking about is the training montage, right? And there, there, there ain't one. There is uh, Michelle Rodriguez running back and forth to the van twice, um, and that's it. And the the little bit of like, uh, we've got three days to learn to uh, to think, act, and move as a as a team. She actually says team of men. Interestingly, uh, I and I guess that refers to g- greater upper body strength or something, and carrying the carrying the money up and down the down the stairs. But like you could expect uh, holding out for a hero to start there and to to you know see them i don't know boxing each other at the uh at the heavy bag that's hanging in the warehouse and you know doing a little obstacle course while you know but doing uh bicep curls with uh, uh one of Michelle Rodriguez's kids in each hand like there, there there are a lot of ways to make this movie bad like and it it's it like edges right up to the line of the ways in which you can make this movie bad and then doesn't do any of them which is i i i that's not one definition of genius. I don't know what is. <laughs> That's good. I like it. <laughs> I mean, I totally hear what you guys are saying and I'm, I'm pretty sold on it. I'm just also communicating that perspective of being in the movie and wondering who I can trust. I'm wondering when we're talking about the people that are reaching out into the void, when you mentioned that it made me think of Colin Farrell or of what, Manning, the Eli Manning reaching out to uh, not Peyton Manning, the elder, but Eli Manning, the younger. Uh, oh, no, sorry. It's it's Mc Mulligan, the second Mulligan, the do over. Right. If Jatem is I love you, if Jatem Manning is I love you, man, then the Mulligan, the second Mulligan is the do over from the first Mulligan uh, reaching out to Manning and saying, hey, I'm willing to concede the race. Uh, if you'll give me a job in your administration, which is like a very strange offer to make to somebody in Manning's line of work, I would assume. Uh, but but, you know, he, we already know he doesn't really want to be in politics. He wants to get out. You know, it just occurred to me when you were you guys when Jordan, when you were talking about this idea of like people finding common cause, not because they're brother and sister, but because they're reaching out the void for somebody. I wonder if there's like a headcanon to apply here where the event at the end of the election is that. Manning sees that he's going to lose because the older Manning has died and comes to an arrangement with the younger Manning to have the same sort of influence that the first guy requested. Uh, 
a I'm going to lose, I don't know. What, but what do you guys I will think about really bow out. We oh we That's got Sky, we got Skypey for a second. Let's uh let's let's go back, Jordan. What did, what was your response to Pizza Headcanon? Oh, just, just that he, I think he transposed the names there. So I'm just trying to make it clear that Jamal uh, realizing that because uh, because the elder, the old alderman has been killed, that he's definitely going to lose, uh, bows out completely with the understanding that now he will be the power behind the throne of Colin Farrell. Is, yeah, is what, that's what you're suggesting. And that's the evidence would be that the preacher is now on Colin Farrell's side where previously he had gone over to the well which side was the preacher actually on i'm sorry i know we don't we we've talked about heist movies are tricky and that you don't really want to spend the whole time talking about plot elements but there are a couple of plot elements in this movie that are really character elements also that maybe we can hash out a little bit one of them is whose side is the preacher on well, he, the preacher's a hustler he goes the way the the way the wind blows right like and it's clear when he when he was having the uh the conversation you know with jamal manning and and Jatem, or no, not uh, not Jatem. It's the the who the campaign manager or something like that. I forget who that character is. Um, that uh, he's like, I'm weighing my options and stuff. Then he's going to go whichever way the wind blows. And you, you totally get that, like when the wind starts blowing in in the direction of Colin Farrell, he's he's completely he's completely on board. My my plot question was what was what was the original heist about and i think that we have to like maybe delve into some of the really spoilery territory uh in order in order to get into it right like so yeah yeah or to put, put it a different way like how did liam neeson want everything to work out before the events of the movie begin because I think I think it's critical that they slip in and almost um, almost offhandedly that Viola Davis says that he never made a mistake for thirty years he didn't make a mistake, um, and then the subtext that nobody says in that scene is like until this one, but then by the very end it turns out that like no 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 that that was almost like a uh, like a tipping their hand that everything turned out the way that Liam Neeson wanted it at least to a certain point. So here's one proposal. And you guys tell me whether this is right or wrong. So Liam Neeson conspires with Colin Farrell to rob Manning of his campaign money. That's what that's what the money is, right? Is it's it's the the gangsters, it's the black gangsters' money that's getting. They stolen. need that money to win the to win the election, right? But are they really trying to win the election? Is what I wonder because when they're on the because Liam Neeson at this point. Because he has been crushed by grief over the death of his son and lost all intimacy with his wife, has started a second family and appears to want to run away with them. And Colin Farrell also hates politics and appears to want to get out with it. And when they meet, it's in the middle of Lake Michigan on a boat toasting, you know, with with fine booze. Is he trying to get this money so that they can all like leave? Is that the goal that he's trying? This is this is his get out money. And that he so. But anyway, putting aside that that question to sort of suss it out a little more quickly, more succinctly, he steals the money from Manning and he kills all the other guys. And he uh, why does he does he and he carries the money away. Right. That money then goes into Colin Farrell's vaults because he's working with Colin Farrell and Colin Farrell is using it on the election. 
is what it seems like. He's spending it. Is he is he using is he funneling it into like the welfare program that he's running for like working mothers? Is that the money that ends up buying the influence at the hair salon? But then Liam Neeson has faked his death. And at the end of the day, he expects he gives Viola Davis the notebook. The note the notebook has the matchbook for the bowling alley. The guy does the here's the question. Here's the question I have. Does the guy at the bowling alley know that Liam Neeson is alive? I think that because that, I think, is something that would pull the plot together. And if it isn't true, then I guess I guess maybe it doesn't make that much of a difference. But uh, you guess why you guys are getting why I'm suggesting that might be like an interesting question Mm -hmm. to ask. I'm not even convinced that the money from the original heist ends up in Colin Farrell's vault because I think there was something where they expected exactly $5 million in that vault because that was the amount. And by the way, this may be one of those Hollywood things that you got to suspend disbelief that like when Colin Farrell or or really, I mean, maybe it's not Colin Farrell. It's Robert Duvall, right? Because Robert Duvall is the one who's the alderman when Robert Duvall embezzles the money. I don't feel like in real life the way you embezzle money is it just shows up in bundles of cash that you then like have on your person. I feel like embezzlement maybe works more like you're shifting money around on the books to various accounts. But in any case, let's just assume that either Robert uh, Duvall or Colin Farrell has embezzled a bunch of money. It's in the vault. Although, honestly, it occurred to me that like – is it even possible that Colin Farrell doesn't know that money's up there? Because keep in mind that like Robert Duvall is the one who embezzles it. When Robert Duvall sees them leaving, he's like, you guys trying to steal my money? So it's it's an open question how much Colin Farrell actually knows about like the full-out criminal dealings of his family or whether he's kind of a useful idiot for his father. He's certainly willing to do crimes in that he plots the whole thing with Liam Neeson. But there's also the thing, the reason I don't think that the money that Liam Neeson walks away with in the duffel bags ends up in Colin Farrell's vault is because there's a scene where they're together and Colin Farrell's like, I need my half of that money. And Liam Neeson is like, uh, yeah, we're working on that, but I'm not actually going to, there's sort of the subtext is I'm not sure I'm actually going to give it to you. So Liam Neeson is actually sitting on that money. The money that's in the vault is the stuff that was for the green line expansion that never happened. Um, and it doesn't really make that much sense that Colin Farrell wants the the $1 million from this heist so badly if he has $5 million of ill-gotten gains sitting in his vault already. Is six, the ma- yeah. Yeah. is six million the magic number that you need to walk away and start a new life outside of politics? Similarly, it's a little bit weird that Liam Neeson, who has apparently $2 million, is not willing to walk away with that $2 million with his new, uh, with his new white family. He's like, no, no, I really kind of need $7 million to make that happen yeah. <laughs> and i guess but, he does have a very nice apartment maybe he's just used to living right. in a certain fashion you could say he's just greedy you also have to ask the question about if liam neeson ha- knows exactly where to get this five million dollars and has the code to the safe why does liam neeson then need to because i think I, what we haven't even gotten to yet because this is really complicated is at least i think there's at least the suggestion that he thinks that his wife is going to hand the plans over to the mannings the mannings will then steal mulligan's money and then he will steal it back from the mannings and disappear forever but i mean is that am, am i making a, like a few no, different leaps in logic i think that seems right because he wants the mannings to have the plans for the heist that's pretty clear. He that expects he said, yeah. that his wife is going to hand over the money. I mean, but I mean, honestly, like this makes a lot of assumptions on his part that the Mannings are going to come after his wife for the money. 
which I mean, I guess they do, but like, I didn't feel like it was a foregone conclusion that they were going to strong arm her because like, why would they assume that she has access to any money? I mean, besides like what's in the, you know, her own personal money, you know, like why would he be so sure that they would take, I don't know. Anyway, let's, so yes. So she's got the notebook. He sort of intends it to be a win-win that she'll get money from the Mannings. She'll be taken care of because maybe he feels like he owes her that much. Meanwhile, the Mannings will commit this heist and maybe burn Mulligan. And it's it's a way to for Liam Neeson to cover his tracks, right? That the person he conspired with to fake his own death gets, although presumably not killed, or at least – I don't know. It, it seems like a dangerous thing. Like if, if Colin Farrell is the one man who knows you're still alive, do you really then want to fuck with this man by like having all his money robbed? It, it seems like you would want to either kill him or leave him entirely alone. Right. As opposed to just like making him very poor and desperate. One, and leaving one him with scene, the secret. One scene that this all this whole conversation really speaks to for me is the scene between Colin Farrell and Viola Davis, where he, where Colin Farrell tells the stone faced Viola Davis that you reap what you sow, that the thing that he learned from his father and that Viola Davis should have learned from her husband is that you reap what you sow. <laughs> and uh, which is just I mean, and Viola Davis gives the ultimate shade. And that is the shadiest shade that has ever been shaded, because, of course, her son was killed for no reason by the police. And uh, and she is now under threat of death for no reason from a bunch of gangsters that she's never met. Uh, and so she is not, in fact, reaping what she sowed. But it is interesting in a couple of respects it, I mean, not but. And it is interesting in a couple of respects because there isn't really any indication anywhere in the movie that these things that are happening to people are a result of their actions. And and even the extent of the motivation of the heist, there is this higher order of manipulation that is happening where none of the people who are actually participating in it are the planners of the heist, are like the ultimate planner of the heist. The ultimate planner of the heist is Liam Neeson, right? He wrote the plan. And they've 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 changed the plan. They've co-opted the plan. They've made the plan their own. But it's still his plan. And they're still but they're also doing it because of his consequences. It's interesting that Colin Farrell thinks that if he doesn't do anything bad from here on out, the problems are his dad's problems and he can escape them. When the other side of it is actually, Colin Farrell, you've benefited so hugely from your father's your father's embezzlement all these years. And your father is trying to tell you this, that your entire station is dependent upon the way that your father has ethnocentrically abused his power. <laughs> right. Um, that you don't know. You, this is not a, a judgment on your character. Right, it's not a judgment on your moral choices. For neither of them is it, because they're caught up in race in America. Well, uh, right, it's and that's that's the race, class, right? There, there's a sense the the discourse about drink, about um, culpability, and about complicity, right, is bound up with a discourse about agency versus necessity uh, in kind of individual choice versus collective, you know, collectively enforced necessity, right? And the the um, Oh, what's her name? Alice's, you know, talking about Alice's mother and like, wh- you know, what she sort of did to raise Alice or like, she, you know, she's talking about, hey, when she's slut shaming her daughter, um, great parenting. But like she's, you know, I, I was there. You can you can do this sugar baby thing now on the on the websites. Right. Like because because uh, uh, you were a tramp in high school. But there's also this weird insinuation 
position, that the mom wasn't totally on the up and up, and that she did things, uh, you know, to kind of get by. And it's it's the grandmother, I think, who is the one who is supposed to have come over from Poland, uh, and right, and that, and and so in uh, or or uh, Michelle Rodriguez realizing that she doesn't own what she owns, like her store is not actually her store that her husband has kind of sold out, sold her out on the lease and uh, this way in which kind of in a partnership or in, in a marriage, um, the other half can sort of oblige you or it can kind of make you complicit in ways that you don't necessarily sign up for at least, uh, at least not consciously. Right. And this is one of the things I think the movie is trying to, uh, is trying to negotiate um, when, when it sort of, uh, goes into who's to blame for what or who, uh, you know, uh, who's to blame for what or, or who has to be called to account for what. And the, uh, you know, and, and um, really, I think the hero, the moral hero is of the film is the architect who is trying to date Elizabeth Debicki. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Because at least, at least. What a she, what a. Dreary, what a dreary evaluation of the film that <laughs> because at least his actions and his words, his intentions line up. You know, at least he purports to be nothing other than what he actually is. Well, no, no, come on. on. I'm the only person who thought that he was secretly married, no, and that's why he didn't totally want to bring it home. Married. Of course, totally I did. Secretly married. Of course, I did. Okay. Don't believe that. But, uh, you know. we, we all got so angry at you. Trolling the libs, trolling <laughs> the libs on the overthinking podcast. <laughs> no, okay. Sorry. That's uh we can, we can take it. Uh, you can take my serious point seriously if you want to at this point. <laughs> it's funny to think about the movie as a racial story alongside the Liam Neeson part, because there are, there are worse ways to characterize uh, racial conflict in America than white people and black people stealing from each other for the benefit of this like old European robber prince who is making off with the profits while both of them squabble over like uh, a, a place that doesn't even have proper public transit. Uh, it's, uh, by the way, as somebody from Boston, I really identified emotionally with the failure of the Green Line extension, as that's something that we've also been dealing with. It's really a, it's really a universal story. The failure of the Green Line extension is a story that everybody knows. Well, the, the Green Line is about like eco-friendly energy, you know, that's because it's the Green Line, right? It's the the alternative uh, energy and the the. Oh, I thought it was I thought it was a money a money metaphor that it was like the Green Line is supposed to extend to this neighborhood, but it never will. Oh well, that, there, like, you, yeah. there you go. Was supposed to get green lined and said it got red lined. Hey, oh, actually, there you, that's actually probably legit, right? Like, although Steve McQueen's not American, right? But they probably had the same line, same uh, stuff. Same you don't have to do that much research to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> and the and the history of that in in Chicago. By the way, low key Chicago as a character without being showy about it, really good and and a pretty a pretty amazing achievement for a, a foreign director. See, I don't know. Maybe I just don't know Chicago well enough. But I have to—I had to keep reminding myself that this wasn't set in Boston. <laughs> yeah, like I really expected Ben Affleck to show up at some point. Yeah, it was—it was a little bit of a, the Departed, right? Uh, the, yeah. the, the town too, Chicola in Chicago this time. <laughs> Although I do—I do feel like the fact that it was set in Chicago uh, 
provides cover for something that might be a plot hole otherwise, which is that a heist goes down, somebody gets shot, and then like 20 minutes later, a woman shows up at a hospital with an unexplained gunshot wound. And I feel like in a normal city, it would be like too big a coincidence for the police not to instantly unravel the whole thing. But it's Chicago, and they've established that there's like dozens of shootings that go on every single weekend. And I can almost believe that like, in Chicago, in this particular neighborhood, you can sort of pass it off as like, oh, it's like another one of the many gunshot victims that got dropped off at that particular hospital that night. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you guys is uh, one thing I thought was fascinating is that Liam Neeson is a professional thief. Everyone seems to know he's a professional thief. Uh, and Manning points out the fact that the police hate him and celebrate his death. But at the same time, the alderman shows up at his funeral to pay his respects. And he is married to somebody who's like a well-respected member of the community and has like a job working for the union, uh, the the uh, teachers union. And so it's interesting that he has, he's a guy with like one public face and another private face. And I feel like the Mannings are the same way that they have, or they want to be the same way, at least that, that they want to have, um, a political front, but, you know, still, well, I mean, it was unclear. I mean, the, the brothers had this sort of like, you know, brief exchange earlier. Was it sort of like, we want this political front because this is we're we're trying to go legit a la the Godfather part two. And we want to get out of the dirty business or it's sort of like, we want to keep the dirty business going, but we need political power to provide a cover for our un, unspecified criminal dealings. No, I mean, they say, I, they spelled it out pretty explicitly. It was like, this is a better racket than the the racket we're in. Right. Not just the, the, cause you know, the, the aldermanic salary is, is peanuts compared with what they're making as criminals, but the ability to peddle influence is what is really, um, you know, is what is really the lucrative thing. Plus it's a much lower risk, uh, it may be lower reward, but it's much lower risk because it's not people with guns coming after you. It's just just newspapers and cameras, right? In that in that conversation early in the film. Yeah. So I mean, it is a movie where multiple characters have they're one thing on the surface, but they're another thing underneath, right? And that, but and everyone sort of is aware of it. Yeah, yeah. And the the sort of the clothes, I mean, I feel like there is there's so many showers. The sh- the shower with Liam Neeson and Viola Davis, the uh the um the spa and the the sauna room with the glass, the glass doors and the idea of sort of glass that is steamed up that's opaque and translucent, um taking off and removing clothes as you get, you know, as you get into the shower um like this this there are a lot of there are a lot of kind of markers of like this is about identity uh as as you go like one one super interesting one i i mean i think the class difference between the characters is something we haven't had time to explore that but that's super interesting with what you say the kind of the public facing of liam neeson and violet davis's relationship with the um uh with, with their you know solidly middle class and then the other the other working class characters who are a lot closer to the edge in terms of like what the loss of a husband and the loss of the uh, the loss of the wage earner right whether they're ill gotten gains or not the loss of the wage earner does um, 
in terms of throwing throwing those families into chaos. But but Viola Davis is in general wrapped in this white coat, like it's the most pronounced costume piece that I associated with with her. And I think that that's like you know it's a sort of shield of of innocence and purity. Uh, but it's sort of it sort of doth protest too much, right? Like the 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 idea that. She didn't know she wasn't involved, but she knew even if she wasn't involved, you know, she, she's not, her hands are not totally clean. Her garment is not totally clean without any blood or dirt on it. Um, you know, and, and you sort of start, right. You're sort of bookended by the first shot of, uh, of Liam Neeson and Violet Davis in bed together, though in the white sheets, and then the last shot of them together is them lying on the floor of the warehouse. Uh, he, him, dead, and her having just just shot him, almost in the same pose, so sort of doubled, right, and uh, uh, wearing black on on the floor because it's right after the right after the heist and they're they're dressed in black so the the sort of the white the white coat the white sheet the sort of translucent shower or spa uh the white robes in the spa right those have been sort of thrown off um and everything is dark uh everything is dark now yeah it reminds me, we're thinking, and I think, yeah, everybody has a public face and a private face, but the people want to bring their private face into their public life. They either do or they don't. They either do want to bring their private face forward to their public life or they don't want to do it. And and I love I love Jatem's engagement with this. And we haven't really had a lot of time, and we probably won't have a lot of time to talk about Jatem, but Jatem's car radio is a really interesting view into his psychology and not the kind of view that you get for a lot of characters that are like him. That, you know, he sits in his radio and he listens to, you know, like public radio lectures about the history of the Black Panther movement. And that speech was so interesting, right? Because it's all about how you're incapable how how the failure of the aftermath of civil rights in the 60s to really produce a material and social equality of, of real substance that, you know, and, and of, of safety of body is a really big part of what the, the Black Panthers are about in terms of their self-defense and, and the way they're trying to exercise power. And when seen in the sort of context of this broader narrative— and and you you're listening to a former Black Panther who went to prison talking about how he was never allowed to change his life, right? And, and that this and or change his situation, and that it does a terrible thing to you to not be able to change your situation. Yeah, it doesn't matter how good he behaves for how long that yep. people would never let him would 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 always view him one way. Yeah, yeah, which is really interesting to think about in the context of Jatem uh, allowing the rappers to rap before executing them, which is another amazing scene. It's like, oh, are you rapping? Okay, rap. And, and there's this almost this little morality play where it's like you're trying to have your voice. You're trying to kind of hustle some sort of greater thing for yourself. I, as the outsider who demonstrates society's unwillingness to let you change, am going to physically interpose my gaze into your presence to make it harder for you to do what you're doing. And if you resist this and continue, I will murder you. Right? Like, uh, shoots the one guy, right? Run, shoots the other guy. It's a real indictment of commercial hip hop. I think it's what the exploitation <laughs> of commercial hip hop. And it's, but, but also just like, and also, did you guys catch how when he was sitting, I think it was at the gas station, he was listening, he was learning a foreign language. 
that he was trying to learn how to speak in a foreign language because he probably wanted to leave the country. Is it like that? That's never really voiced, as far as I know. But he's like, pra- he's practicing how to talk to people at the resort, right? Or like people at the hotel. And was it Spanish or Portuguese or French? I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, but do you guys think, catch that? And like, yeah, I think it was Spanish, which doesn't necessarily speak to leaving the country. But I, what what seemed important to me about that is that it's self improving, right? Right. Yeah. Um, he's he feels very like uh, Brother Muzone on the wire a little bit. That huh. there's this sort of uh, he has this kind of um, he's outside of society and better than society, but as a result, he's utterly indifferent to people's lives because they're sort of the insects and he's up high or something like that. Um, and he's he's not a real character. He's too mm. too much of a heavy for that. But it's a really interesting genre character and a wonderful performance. Mm. You know that that actor is also but so good. What do you guys make of how quickly he gets taken out? Because I feel like I was. So here's the deal. He's driving the van. Uh, the girls. I'm not exactly sure what what we think that they did. Whether they sort of like flagged down a car, Grand Theft Auto style, or whether they happened to have a car that was parked nearby, and so they could just uh, catch up within a minute. And they rear-end him, and then he basically crashes into a wall. He dies, and it's it was very unexpected to me. And I gotta feel like the women who rear-ended the van didn't think they were gonna kill him. Thought that at best they were gonna like you know disable the van and grab the money. So I don't it, it almost struck me as like a, a no country for old men moment at the end where this accident is just sort of this bolt from the blue that takes out somebody who everything looked good for them a second ago. I mean, he's hit by a family station wagon. So it's exactly like old no country for old men in that respect. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. And is it was that was that station wagon? I think it's a, it's either a station wagon or like a, a SUV crossover kind of thing that looks kind of like a station wagon. What's really the difference? It looks unibody. But the point is that like uh was that was that um Bella's car or was that Lin- there was somebody had a station wagon earlier in the movie that they were driving around in and I felt like that might have been Bella's car that she used to get to the neighborhood to scope it out originally before the heist happened. But it should, they also might have just stolen it. I don't know. But, yeah, I, I totally hear what you're saying that, like, I was trying to remember exactly what's going on inside of Jatem's car when he gets hit, because oh. I was wondering if there's some sort of clue that, that indicates, like, what's this supposed to be saying that he's being killed so abruptly and severely at this point in the story? So a couple of things. One is that he doesn't kill them, which is very out of character for him. Mm. Two is that you see him just before he gets rear-ended, like, lose his cold-faced, dead-eyed thing that he's been doing all along and grin and say something like, yeah, all right, because he has this money in the back of his car. And he's like, yes, I pulled that off. This is great. And what that does is, like, he loses his, his immunity. He's no longer fate He's a person who wants things and is therefore vulnerable. And immediately that's driven home by having him die in this sort of random, pointless way. Which I feel like, again, old country for no men is uh, old country for no men. <laughs> old country for no men? <laughs> no, that's, that's America, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> is the obvious touchstone there, where it's sort of the same thing happens to Shigur, that he's supposed to just be uh, this, this nemesis death's head, but then he also is just a human body. Um. Yeah, what was on his stereo right at that moment? 
That's what I was trying to yeah, remember. Yeah, I, I couldn't. I didn't clock that either because the the crash was so unexpected. All right, let's uh, let's wrap up our conversation uh, just with one last question for Pete. And Pete, uh, oh, yes. this is it. What do you think of the assessment of the various vans at the auction at the auto auction? Oh, that that felt very, very grounded. I felt like that was among the most realistic scenes in the entire movie, just in terms of uh, just in terms of preferring that particular Chevy van over the Dodge van that was being recommended. I really I really agree with the guy who suggested that, you know, you can get the Dodge van. And it really has those capabilities that you want, but it's not going to have that lower reliability. Those uh those those GM engines from that era are pretty bulletproof and things going to run forever. Uh, although I do disagree with the uh, decision that the characters seem to make that van knowledge is a sexually desirable trait that makes you attractive to women, uh, because that might have been where he strained his own credulity and suspension of disbelief. But with regards to, to vans, he was he was rock solid. Well, good. <laughs> just, just, just one of the many details that add up to the incredible verisimilitude in <laughs> Uh, in this film. All right. Thanks very much for listening to us talk about Widows. We would love to hear what you think. We went really long tonight, so we won't do again, we won't do uh, comments, but we will get to all of them. We have comments from the last couple episodes that that uh, we want to read into the record on the show. If you would like to talk about Widows, you, you should go see Widows if you have a couple days off over Thanksgiving. It's, it's a good one. Not necessarily a, a feel-good family movie. Do a fantastic beasts for that and we'll talk about that uh talk about that next week though though it would be it's a tough uh tough battle between that and that and creed too but the, but um uh well i think we'll do fantastic beasts and uh that's your family movie but go see this with your uh uh go see this with your art house movie buddies or your heist movie buddies who uh, whatever friends uh you like to go see this kind of film with and and leave a comment go to overthinkingit.com find the show notes for this episode there's a place where you can leave a comment there we uh love to read those out and to have some fun talking about them thanks very much to matt to pete and to jordan for podcasting with me we'll be back next next week with more Overthinking It podcasts. Until then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It It probably probably doesn't deserve. psyched for widows 2 which is about the assistant vice principal who has a trash bag full of unmarked bills and now has to somehow rename his school library after the son of a notorious bank robber who just faked his own death and then was shot to death (laughs) what's the name of that movie jordan (laughs) i did not get into this line of work to deal with these kinds of problems (laughs) it won't fit on the marquee but i think it'll fit in all of our hearts (laughs) 